Hey, Faye, it's Creog season again, um, and so we need to help residents figure out the best way to study aside from just listening to the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that um, we did when we were residents was to look at the OBG project, which can give you really quick updates on the most up-to-date practice guidelines, as well as create your own library where you can go back to those guidelines um, that you specifically like. Head on over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com, and check out the sidebar. Chief residents, you can get OBG first, the premium product, absolutely free for your chief year. That'll cover you for creogs as well as your board studying. And residents, you can also benefit from the resident core curriculum, absolutely free. Again, head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar. Happy studying. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. Today we have with us a very exciting guest. Um, we have Dr. Edward Kim on the podcast with us today, who is one of our urogynecology fellows at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Dr. Kim. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, I understand today we're going to talk a bit about interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome, and then talk a little bit about clinical presentation, treatment, basically everything that we could think of to talk about it. So I'm excited to hear more because I just took my boards and... Uh, I can't say whether or not I was tested on IC, I guess, but what I'll say is this is not a topic that I would have been comfortable with on my boards. Absolutely. I agree. Well, I guess we should just kick this off, Ed. Um, why don't you start off soft? So, you know, tell us two MFMs. What is interstitial cystitis? What is the actual term nowadays? Is it painful bladder syndrome, bladder pain syndrome? Yeah, of course. So, so first off, as Faye alluded to, Interstitial status is somewhat of a misnomer, so there's no really conclusive evidence that there is an inflammation nor distinct pathology in the bladder interstitium. So the more contemporary thinking, as you mentioned, is that these patients have more of a chronic pain condition that is related to or perceived to be originating from the bladder itself. So a newer terminology that we've been using is bladder pain syndrome. Um, in clinical practice, some patients actually prefer the term interstitial cystitis because it sounds more medical and they don't want to be labeled as having pain syndrome. So you may come across patients uh, who say that I prefer the term interstitial cystitis or bladder pain syndrome. And you may come across either IC or BPS or ICBPS in the literature. Uh, but in, the, in this talk, I'm going to use the term IC. Great. So tell us exactly how common IC is. Yeah, in terms of epidemiology, IC can affect men and women, but it's definitely more common in women. And it usually presents in their 40s with the symptoms of IC that I'm going to talk about. And so if a woman presents to you and she's in her 40s and she's having some of these symptoms, then it really should be under differential diagnosis, but also be on the differential diagnosis for women in their 20s to 30s and even 50s as well. And the, given the evolving nature of our understanding of IC and the variable definitions that people have used in the past, it's probably not surprising that we don't really know the precise prevalence, but an estimate that we usually quote is about three to eight million women in the U.S. have IC 
Wow, that's like quite a few women. Um, so it seems rather common. So talk to me, Ed, you know, if we have someone who comes in, what would they present with? Yeah, so a clinical presentation can really vary, but most patients will complain of persistent urinary urgency, persistent urinary frequency, and pain or discomfort related to voiding. So note that we say pain or discomfort because some patients actually will kind of push back and say, I'm actually not feeling pain and I'm feeling more of a discomfort. Uh, so a pretty classic story is that a patient with these symptoms who have been treated multiple times for a urinary tract infection, despite having multiple negative urine cultures. And they may also report going to the bathroom frequently or spending so much of their time on the toilet to relieve their urgency or discomfort or pain. So as you can imagine, this is really disruptive to their quality of life, especially these young women. And many of these patients may also have associated conditions like IBS or irritable bowel syndrome fibromyalgia, and pelvic floor muscles, muscle dysfunction. And they also may have concurrent uh, psychiatric comorbidities such as depression or anxiety. Yeah. And I would guess based on, you know, this sort of varied clinical presentation, you know, with folks having urgency or frequency, or maybe even kind of like vague discomfort symptoms that go along with these other conditions, um, diagnosis might be kind of challenging. Yeah, absolutely. So Usually it's a clinical diagnosis and we typically use a diagnostic criteria from the American Neurological Association or the AUA. And the definition is an unpleasant sensation, pain, pressure, or discomfort perceived to be related to the urinary bladder associated with lower tract symptoms of more than six weeks duration and the absence of infection or other identifiable causes. So it's kind of a mouthful, but essentially really it's a clinical diagnosis and a diagnosis of exclusion. And the differential diagnosis that we should keep in mind, of course, include infection, overactive bladder, urinal cancer, bladder cancer, gynecologic cancer, fibroids with the compression effect in the bladder, stones, diverticulum, and foreign materials such as mesh or sutures if they had pelvic surgery in the past, or you know other chronic pelvic conditions such as endometriosis. So that's why it's really important to perform a thorough history and physical and obtain a post-void residual and at least a urine test such as a U-dip or urine analysis and as an initial evaluation to rule out some of the other etiologies. Some other notes, you may have heard about hernia lesions, which are seen on cystoscopy. They're specific for IC, but they're only seen in about 10% of patients with IC. You also may have heard about potassium sensitivity tests, where potassium chloride is instilled into the bladder, but this is really not performed in the US anymore because it's really not accurate. Also, it's really painful for patients. Uh, and urodynamics is uh, typically not used to diagnose IC, but it can be done to rule out other etiologies that we talked about. All right, Ed, so now that we've talked a little bit about the clinical presentation and diagnosis, you know, I feel like most patients really want to find a solution to their IC because they are so uncomfortable. So what are some of the treatment options that we can offer our patients? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, as with any chronic pain condition, the management strategy is multifaceted. And AUA's website has a really great treatment algorithm for IC. And I believe uh, Nick and Faye can put a link to that on the blog as well. First-line treatments are patient education, behavior, and diet modification, and general stress management. There's really good evidence behind teaching patients bladder retraining, where patients learn to increase the interval between each voice. Some patients report that avoidance of things like artificial sweetener, caffeine, alcohol, spicy foods, citrusy or acidic foods help with their symptoms. 
It's important to tell them that they don't have to completely eliminate these foods in their diet. Rather, just knowing that their triggers can empower them to make informed decision about their diet. Some patients find applying heat or ice bags to the suprapubic or perineal regions pretty helpful as well. And if a patient has pelvic floor muscle tenderness or dysfunction on your exam, it may also be helpful to refer them to pelvic floor physical therapy. The second line treatments include oral medications and bladder installations. And there are two really types of oral medications that we typically use daily and PRM medications. PRM medications, as you may have guessed, is usually peridium or over-the-counter ESO. When patients have their flares for IC, sometimes they can take it, but definitely warn the patients that their urine will turn orange and it may stain clothing. Some patients also find amitriptyline useful as well, and hydroxyzine and uh, pentosin polysulfate sodium, or Almiron. Note that Almiron is the only FDA-approved medication for IC, but the use of Almiron has been associated with uh, macular eye disease. So in 2020, the FDA inserted a warning label to reflect this, and the use of Almiron has been declining. So between amitriptyline and hydroxyzine. Currently, there's more data on amitriptyline. Some patients find amitriptyline helpful in controlling their symptoms when taken daily, but some can't really tolerate its sedative and anticholinergic effects. And if there is inadequate response to medications, then bladder insulations can be considered. This involves installing a mixture of local anesthetic, heparin, DMSO, et cetera, via a catheter. It usually involves repeated treatments. And then going further down the line, third line treatment is hydrodistension. And some of our listeners may have heard about this. Hydrodistension involves hyperdistension of the bladder on the anesthesia for about 10 minutes and emptying the bladder completely. The thought is that the sensory nerves in the bladder are disrupted due to the hyperdistension. Some patients see relief for months. And for patients who see prolonged and significant benefit, repeat treatments are considered. And by the way, if you see Hunter lesions on cystoscopy, they can be addressed with cautery, resection, or even injection with steroids. And then less common, um, but further, further down the line, are fourth-line treatments that includes neuromodulation or using botulism toxin A injection into the bladder. These techniques have been used for overactive bladder and neurogenic bladder, but recent clinical trials have reported efficacy for IC as well. And then less common um, is Fifth line treatment, which is cyclosporin A, as you can imagine, its use is limited due to its side effects and paucity of convincing data. And sixth line and last resort is surgical diversion of the bladder with or without cystectomy. So fortunately, when we see patients uh, for IC, they seldom have to go past fourth line treatments. And as with any kind of chronic pain condition, it's really a difficult journey for many of them. And it's really critical for providers to listen and empathize with them. Thank you for that super overview of therapeutics for IC, because um, it is a wild world of multiple line things. And, you know, as you said, fortunately, we're not usually running this far down the line, um, but it's good to get that overview. I think we're getting ready to hit the end of this podcast, Ed, um, but I just wanted to ask you, you know, since you are subspecialist in this area, um, what do you want our listeners to take away from our conversation today, the big highlights and things that they should definitely remember. So in recap, I would say IC affects up to 8 million women in the US. It's a chronic pain condition and a diagnosis of exclusion. 
AUA's diagnostic criteria and treatment algorithms are really great tools. Um, and treatment is usually multifaceted and starts with patient education, behavioral and diet modification. And please refer to a urogynecologist or a urologist um, because we're always available and happy to help. Thank you so much, Ed, for coming on to the podcast with us today and talking to us about IC. Um, also, you know, we know that you are an expert in this field, so I also wanted to um, give you, you know, a little time to talk a little bit about your research in this area as well. Thanks, Faye, uh, for giving me the opportunity to talk about my project. So my research product is on helping women with IC self-manage their symptoms at home. So it involves six weeks of women receiving text messages of video modules on self-management of their IC flares, such as bladder retraining, dietary modification, at-home pelvic floor exercises that we have uh, built with our pelvic floor PT, also uh, cognitive behavioral therapy focused on anxiety with our psychiatrist faculty, and also um, mindfulness practices that's audio-guided mindfulness. And so it's a great tool for women who've been diagnosed with IC fairly recently, learn about how to self-manage their symptoms at home. So if you know any women who might be interested who have been recently diagnosed with IC, I'm really interested in managing their symptoms at home and not resort to more of the invasive therapy. Please uh, give me an, uh, shoot me an email and I'd be happy to uh, see if they're eligible and enroll them in the study. Yeah, and we will uh, post your contact information, Ed, for our listeners on our website so that they can be directed to you. Thank you. All right, guys, I think that about does it for today. So thank you once more, Ed. And once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the episode today, go ahead and give us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting app on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. You can find us online on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee One, on Instagram and Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee. Or if you love the show and want to give us some support, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Coffee. Send us some love. We'll send you some swag. You can also find show notes for this show and every other episode on our website, as well as the Rosh Review question of the week on creogsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us or suggestions for a future episode, or want to get your patient enrolled in Ed's IC study and can't find his info on the website, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>